Welcome to Counter Apologetics. Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we'll be discussing Marx and religion. Karl Marx penned one of the most famous anti-religious statements of all time. Religion is the opium of the people. Everyone's heard that line, but much like Nietzsche's God is dead, people have a tendency to take it at face value and are happy to reduce it to a slogan without looking much into the thought behind it. But I think it's worth examining what led one of the most influential atheists in history to make such a remark and his view of religion that undergirded it. So at face value, the comment is straightforward enough. Religion is like a drug. It's probably not good for you overall, but it makes your life easier. It's a simple, quick solution to complicated problems. And like God is dead, the popular understanding of Marx's line isn't completely accurate. It's not as bad as it is with Nietzsche, where people think he was celebrating the death of God and popping the champagne gleefully, which is nearly the opposite of what he intended to convey. But Marx's actual view of religion isn't as disdainful or dismissive or incomplete as it might sound. Drugs, for example. And I don't believe, and in fact Marx never said, that religion is just an opiate. But religion and Christopher Hitchens has objected that the misreading of the quotation makes it sound as if Marx thought religion was nothing more than an opiate. Marx did say that religion provides an escape from real life and that it often functions as an opiate, but in the same paragraph he also called religion the spirit of a spiritless situation. You could just as easily cherry-pick that line and claim the point was that religion is all about giving hope to the hopeless. The point is that there's a big difference between saying religion often serves as an opiate, which is true, and saying religion is just an opiate, which greatly oversimplifies religion as a natural phenomenon. In context, it's clear Marx thought that religious people, confronted with the conditions of their existence, looked for something transcendent to make their lives worth living. He had sympathy and compassion for their situation and wanted to help them, but he thought they were only treating their symptoms rather than looking deeper. Treating the symptom isn't a bad start, but it's only a start. Marx thought that religion can reduce pain, but don't fool yourself and think you're solving the underlying problem just by treating the symptoms. This all comes from a manuscript called Critique of Hegel's Philosophy of Right, which is Marx's commentary on the philosopher Hegel's 1820 work, Elements of the Philosophy of Right. The essay begins with some of Marx's thoughts on the social function of religion. According to the philosopher Peter Singer, Marx didn't really argue for atheism. He just sort of assumed it and moved forward from there. He calls religion an illusion and says earlier in the manuscript that man makes religion, religion does not make man. But his primary concern is with the function of religion. So let's read the line in its context. Quote, Religious distress is at the same time the expression of real distress and the protest against real distress. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, just as it is the spirit of a spiritless situation. It is the opium of the people. The abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is required for their real happiness. The demand to give up the illusion about its condition is the demand to give up a condition which needs illusions. The criticism of religion is therefore the criticism of the veil of woe, the halo of which is religion. Criticism has plucked the imaginary flowers from the chain, not so that man will wear the chain without any fantasy or consolation, but so that he will shake off the chain and cull the living flower. The criticism of religion disillusions man to make him think and act and shape his reality like a man who has been disillusioned and has come to reason. End quote. So as you can see there, Marx has great sympathy for religious people. They're looking for something transcendent to make bearable the awful conditions of their real lives. 
He's not just putting them down as weak. To Marx, the religious impulse is primarily to make life meaningful and dignified, not just to escape by any means necessary. Though as the opiate line makes clear, escapism is a function that religion serves. And religion is like a drug in a lot of ways, but it's not just a drug. And this sort of reminds me of Nietzsche's disdain for alcohol. He said, there have been two great narcotics in the history of Europe, Christianity and alcohol. The reason Nietzsche didn't like alcohol was because he thought it suppressed your will to improve, distracting you from your struggles and giving you a cheap shortcut for overcoming your problems. People drink for all kinds of reasons, like for confidence in social situations, to deal with problems stemming from work or relationships, or just to make their experience more interesting and worth having. Alcohol, in his view, was just a way of keeping you from having the chance to truly confront whatever is causing you to drink, and keeping you from ever benefiting from the personal growth that would result, and robbing you of the overcoming of your particular struggle. Rather than trying to get whatever it is you want, you escape, or you take a shortcut, and get a less satisfying version of it. And likewise, Marx thought that in order to change our conditions and throw off the chains that we're bearing, we have to take away the opium and stop ignoring the heavy, ugly chain around our necks. Let's go back to that passage. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, it is the opium of the people. The abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is required for their real happiness. End quote. So in the same way that a heroin addict might be happy in a certain sense, achieving happiness without opium is, in a sense, truer happiness. It's a more desirable form of positive experience. It's a better form of well-being. He goes on, quote, The demand to give up the illusion about its conditions is the demand to give up a condition which needs illusions. End quote. So criticizing the illusion isn't an end, but a means to an end, to change the conditions that require being under an illusion in the first place. In our current civilization, to Marx, religion is necessary in the same way opium might be necessary for someone who's in pain. But if we altered the conditions that require illusions, the illusions would then dissipate, and a better form of happiness, one that's not grounded in otherworldly fantasies, can fill the vacuum. And going back to the passage, quote, Criticism has plucked the imaginary flowers from the chain, not so that man will wear the chain without any fantasy or consolation, but so that he will shake off the chain and cull the living flower. The criticism of religion disillusions man to make him think and act and shape his reality like a man who has been disillusioned and has come to reason. End quote. So if it's not clear, the chain represents the conditions and the flowers that mask the chain are religion. We're not plucking the flowers from the chain, removing the fantasy and consolation of religion just to be cruel, though it may seem so at first if we truly are taking away someone's comforting illusion. They're just trying to deal with the chains that they're bearing, and you're really forcing them to deal with the fact that things maybe aren't great, and that retreating into the spiritual world isn't the whole answer. But the point is to get over a barrier that's preventing you from actually improving your life, whether or not you recognize religion as the barrier that it is. When I was first reading Marx on religion in The Portable Atheist, which is the book of essays collected by Christopher Hitchens, I recalled something I first learned at a Christian university. I was dual enrolled during my last year of high school and I took a sociology class where the professor, who was a Christian, nonetheless often raised uncomfortable questions for the students. Something he pointed to was the inverse correlation between religiosity and wealth. The richer you are, the less religious people are likely to be. The less wealth you have, the more religious people tend to be. And to the extent that rich people are religious, there's a similar correlation with charismatic versus legalistic. As wealth increases, charismatic practice decreases. 
So even if you are a rich religious person, statistically speaking, it's far more likely that your interpretation of religion is very traditional and academic, while the poorer you are, the more charismatic and literalistic you tend to be. These are only general trends and rough correlations. We can't establish the arrow of causation from these data alone, but it is what you would predict on Marx's idea that religion comes when you live in conditions that require an illusion. Reality is lacking, so you look to an otherworldly reality to improve your life. And these data show that as your material reality improves, you tend to either abandon the illusion or take it far less seriously than the literalistic adherence. Of course, it isn't necessary to think that this is a conscious process going on in religious people to think that there's something to it. The most religious countries in the world are lower on indicators of health and happiness. The U.S. stands alone in the developed world in its religiosity. And we also stand alone in the developed world for our remarkably terrible scores on measures of societal health and happiness. There's an inverse correlation between societal health and rates of religiosity, belief in God, belief in an afterlife, and biblical literalism. The less religious Western countries are better when it comes to rates of infant mortality, homicide, suicide, STDs, teen births, divorce, corruption, incarceration, poverty, adjusted per capita income, wealth inequality, and overall life satisfaction. The United States stands out as a uniquely religious country and also has a uniquely awful performance on all those measures of societal health. And this also holds up with red states versus blue states in the same way. To quote the researcher Gregory Paul in 2010, there is a growing body of research that is revealing the crucial role of socioeconomics in the origin and popularity of religion, as well as in creationism. In modern nations, non-religion and the acceptance of evolution become popular when the middle class majority feels sufficiently secure and safe, thanks to low income inequality, universal health care, job and retirement security, and low rates of lethal crime. This has occurred to greater and lesser degrees in most first world countries. Religion thrives when the majority seek the aid and protection of supernatural powers. End quote. As the Western world becomes less religious, every measure of human well-being improves. Or, as Marx would think, as measures of well-being improve, religion declines. Correlation doesn't equal causation, and we don't know which direction the arrow of causality goes, and we don't even know for certain that they're related. But it's a fact that, as the Western world becomes less religious, every measure of human well-being improves. And I don't think these data would surprise Marx at all, since they're exactly what you would predict on his explanation of the modern function of religion. As measures of human well-being increase, religion declines because the need for religion declines. We're very religious here in the U.S., whereas in places like Sweden or Denmark, where there is a much stronger social safety net and uniquely high measures of societal health, religiosity is at historic lows. Marx thinks that religion takes you out of this world and carries you off into a different world. Your central focus, according to Christianity, should be on otherworldly concerns, and I'm not just talking about the afterlife. And to mention Nietzsche one more time, he had a similar view. To Nietzsche, Christianity condemns earthly existence, demanding that we reject the natural world and repent of nature as the price of admission to a different, superior plane of being. He said, and thus spoke Zarathustra, quote, I appeal to you, my brothers, remain true to the earth, and do not believe those who speak to you of otherworldly hopes. Poisoners are they, whether they know it or not. Despisers of life are they, decaying and poisoned themselves, of whom the earth is weary. So let them go. One of the reasons this analysis of the function of religion jumped out at me was because of my own experience in the church. 
You're encouraged to focus on otherworldly matters, not just heaven and paradise, but God's plan for you and your development as a good Christian and so on. Additionally, caring very little about lowly, earthly matters is often considered to be the sign of a good Christian, whether it's not worrying for the morrow or having peace in spite of a terrible storm or having the joy of the Lord in some bad time or believing that prayer counts as helping or caring more about getting people saved than helping them materially. You're essentially told that you're not supposed to be bothered much by what's happening around you in the real world. Even if you're in the valley of the shadow of death, it's a sign of wisdom and maturity to be at peace in bad circumstances. But the problem is if you're actually trying to improve the world, this is absolutely counterproductive. The conditions that require an illusion will never change if everyone embraces the comforting illusion and pays no mind to the root problems that are causing the need for an opiate in the first place. I would also say that this is related to the common religious refrain, everything happens for a reason. No matter what trials and tribulations you endure, it's because God is making you into a better person. This everything happens for a reason mindset is sometimes a good recipe for personal happiness, though it often backfires, but if you believe it, you'll always be searching for opportunities for growth and overcoming and meaning in the midst of tragedies. Of course, you can still do this without having an irrational view of the world, but everything happens for a reason is not a very good way to inspire change. In fact, in addition to being untrue, it prevents positive change. Think about how many Christians believe the world will end in the next 50 years because Jesus is going to return, and the complacency those beliefs engender, or their appeal to God's mysterious ways or his plan when confronted with obvious evil, or their appeal to heaven as a way to ensure justice in the end. Or think about those who believe in the reality of karma. If you're living in pain or poverty, it's because of your actions in a past life. Why would you try to improve a universe that's already perfectly just? Anyone suffering deserves it, and in fact, everyone gets exactly what they deserve. These non-naturalistic worldviews don't just distract you from material reality right in front of you, but actively get in the way of anyone trying to improve the world. That's all I have for you today. I have to thank my Hall of Fame patrons, Jesta, Phil Stilwell, and Richard Crossan. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com counter where you can earn early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the capital to support on Patreon, but you still want to seize the means of production, you can add me on Facebook, leave a five-star review, or tell your comrades about the podcast. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll see you next time.